say the game is getting old. Monday morning and your coffee's cold. Life is not what you want it to be. You need another chance to... Hello, everyone, and welcome to A New Direction. My name is Jay Izzo, and wow, do we have a great, great show. I'm going to tell you something. This is going to be one of those eye-opening shows that is going to absolutely just go... You're going to go, what? What? No, Jay, I don't, no, see, you're going to be, you're going to do the denial thing. I promise you, you will, because you know why? I am with author expert. His name is Howard J. Ross. The book is entitled Every Day Bias. You know what? We're in denial when it comes to bias, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, and I, I was talking to Howard and I was saying, that, you know, I have this acronym for denial. Don't even know I am lying. And when it comes to bias, we don't even know we are lying. You know why? Because we don't think we're biased. We think we're right. We think that we have got the world by the hand and we have, we're, you know what? We are completely honest and truthful. There is no bias in us whatsoever. There is nothing about us that could possibly be biased because you know why we see things the right way. That's a bias. <laughs> People, we're all biased. Come on. I don't care where you live in this great world that we have, right? You're biased. You have a set of beliefs. You have a set of, you've, you've got a set of memories. Howard's going to talk about all that, okay? And I'm just going to tell you something. He's brilliant. The book's brilliant. The book is absolutely fantastic. It's an eye-opener. I'm, I'm telling you. It made me look at myself really, really, really clearly about my own biases, right? And I always knew that I had them, but then I had to be really, really honest about them because the truth of the matter is I still hold on to them. And it may not be that you even see them, but I know I have them. What do we do with them? How do we overcome them? That's why we have Howard Ross on the show. He's going to help us do that, all right? Hey, but before we do that, right, let's do what we do every week, right? And I talk to you about your training, right? Because I believe we're four-part people. We're physical people, we're mental people, we're emotional people, and we're spiritual people. And, and you know, the truth of the matter is, you know, I've interviewed a lot of these special operation forces guys on the show, and every one of them has said the same thing, right? And, you know, when you're exhausted, when you're tired, when you're under stress, when you're under pressure, when things are, are, are going bad, at the end of the day, you're only as good as your training in those four areas. That's it. Because that's what you rely on when you're exhausted, is your training. And you know what's interesting? I started thinking about this the other day, is you know, if you're not training every day, then you can't possibly be better. And you go, Jay, I can't, I can't physically train every day. Well, I didn't say intensity of training, but you need to be doing something, right, every day, right? I mean, you could be stretching. You could be doing a whole variety of things that you could be doing with your mind and your body and your spirit and, and your emotions that you could be training all those things every day, right? We should be intentional about that, right? So let's just go through these four areas, right? On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being miserable, 10 being outstanding, let's talk about your physical training and how that's going, right? So when I say physical, here's what I mean. I'm not just talking about exercise, I'm talking about getting enough sleep. I'm talking about drinking enough water, right? I'm talking about eating right, right? I'm talking about doing the things that you need, stretching more, doing the things that you need to do to take care of your body, right? By the way, some, so this is, I'm going to tell you something about training in the physical sense here right now, too, and, and it can apply to any sense. Can I tell you something? If you're physically training and then you're going out and you decide to eat, you know, sugar and candy and drink sodas or and, and you're going to overdrink or overconsume alcohol can i just tell you something you, you're training you just you just cut back your training right see we, we think that because i train that allows me to eat something that is not good for me 
that's not the that's not the best your training can do. All right, so you need to be really, really careful about, you know, not making excuses saying, you know what, I, I get to eat what I want to eat because I worked out hard. That's not training, right? That means that you're trying to get something, and, and we can be real biased about that. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate yourself in your training, right? 1 being bad, 10 being great, 5 to average. All right, there's your first number. Second number, mental training. By the way, great mental training. It's called reading. <laughs> I know it comes as a shock, doesn't it? But you know what? You need to you need to be active in your mental training. You need to be able to be you need to take some activity in training yourself mentally. You need to read, you need to expand your mind, you need to grow. We have two sides of the brain. There's a right side that's creative, the left side is more logical. We need to be working both halves of the brain. Right? And when we need to be constantly vigil about working, not just letting things come at us, not just believing everything that we hear, not just allowing things to just be self-absorbed. No, we have to take an active part. It's, it's like doing the physical training. You can't just go to the gym and expect to get better. You actually have to lift the weights. You actually have to do some work if you want to train, and that's true mentally. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you say your mental training is going? Right? Okay, emotional training. And you go, how do you emotionally train? We emotionally train every day. I promise you somebody has done something to you, whether cut you off in the middle of the road or somebody has nagged at you or somebody just uh, sent you an email that was just mean-spirited. How did you respond emotionally? Yeah, I I asked that question. How did you respond emotionally? Because you had a choice. Right? See, See, that's the thing is that you actually had a choice. You could choose. You could choose how you respond emotionally. It didn't say this was easy. It takes practice, right? All training is practice, right? So emotional training is just like the gym. You can't just go to the gym one day and expect to be in great shape. You have to do it every day. Emotional training, same way, every day. You have to be intentional. You have to work on your technique. You have to say, whoa, what am I, why am I feeling this? Do I need to feel this? I don't need to feel this. I got a choice here, right? So how would you say you're doing in your emotional training? All right, then finally, you've got three numbers, right? Mental, physical, emotional. Now finally is a spiritual number, right? How's your spiritual training going? And what I mean by spiritual training, I, I, I was, was reading something the other day and then I was kind of commenting to myself about it. You know, so often we try to think about spirituality in terms of happiness, But sadly, happiness is subjective to each one of us. So there's no central unifying force when it comes to happy. However, joy is something internal, meaning that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of anything that's happening around us, that we can always experience joy inside of ourselves. Right now, how you experience that and how you bring that in, right? A lot of people have different f- theories and, and philosophies about that, right? Some people believe in God, some people believe in meditation, some people believe in nature. There's a whole variety of ways that people believe that they can experience that joy, that sense of self-centeredness. And, and I don't mean self-centered as an egotistical. I mean to be centered into your to, to the self, so that you can be relaxed and calm in the midst of chaos. That's the spiritual part. So what are you doing and how's that working for you? And you say, I'm not spiritual. I promise you, you are. I say it every week. And you know what that is, right? Do you have plans for the future? Yes or no? And all of you are going to go, yes, I do have plans for the future. I plan on going somewhere, right? Have you gone there yet? No, well, because they're a plan, right? So that means you have faith that they're going to happen. And if you have faith that they're going to happen, that means you're spiritual. There it is. So how's it working? 
And if it's not working, what do you got to do to change it? You know, and that's the question you need to ask all four of these areas, right? It, you know what? If it's not working, what do you need to do to change? So you got four numbers, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, right? Whatever those numbers are. We're just we're just trying to get to the next number. We're, I'm, I'm not trying to get you. If, you. if you said you are honestly a three, I'm not trying to get you to a 10 today. I just want you to do the best you can to get to a four or even a 3.5. Do something to change that number so that, you know what, tomorrow you are just a little bit higher than the number you're right now in your training, right? And speaking of someone who is just brilliant, and he, he, he's a guy who trains all the time. His name is Howard J. Roth. He's a lifelong, lifelong social justice advocate and a seminal thought leader on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. He is author of Reinventing Diversity and the Washington bestseller, which we have here, Everyday Bias. Um, he has won the 2019 Nellis Book Award Gold Medal for Social Change and Social Justice. He has specialized in synthesis of neurocognitive and social science research. By the way, that's much easier to to read than to say. And <laughs> and direct application. His client work is focused on the areas of corporate culture change, leadership development, and managing diversity. Ross uh, Howard has uh, successfully implemented change efforts in academic institutions, corporations, and retail, healthcare, media, governmental institutions in 47 states and over 40 countries worldwide. He's also delivered programs at Harvard, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, Wharton, and over 25 other colleges and universities. Howard served as the 2007-2008 Janetta B. Cole Professor of Diversity at Bennett College for Women, the first time a white, minded, a white man had ever served in such a position, which we have in common because I taught culture and diversity uh, as well to a um, majority uh, minority audience. And so I am really excited to have him on. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show and welcome to A New Direction, Howard Ross. Welcome, Howard. Jay, thanks so much for being here. Man, you were on a roll. You could just keep going. I mean, you know, I'd say, <laughs> I do. I do appreciate the warm, the warm introduction. My father would have loved it. My mother would have even believed a lot of it. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. With the, this book uh, that you wrote, uh, Everyday Bias, and by the way, secondary title, secondary title, Identifying and Navigating Unconscious Judgments in Our Daily Lives, um, I found the book to be fascinating, it, just fascinating and interesting to read. I loved, uh, I loved reading through it because I was, as somebody who's a psychological professional, I was so engaged in into this in, into the idea of bias because I know that we have it and I had uh, Dr. Gleb Taberski who wrote Never Go with Your Gut, uh, who talked about uh, bias as well and I just Gleb's a good friend. Oh really? Okay, yeah. so yeah, he is a good friend. I know him well. Okay, well he was he did uh, he did show here last year and was great and we had a great time and when I saw the book I said you know what I think this is going to be just a great follow up to Gleb's mm. to Gleb's work so I'm very excited about it. We, you come right out in the introduction, and I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, you really kind of soften us up, right? People buy more French wine when French music is playing on, on the, you know, on the radio or in the store, right. and Ger they buy more German wine when German music is playing on the background. And yeah. you say biases occur without people even knowing why they occur. Human beings are constantly, routinely, and profoundly biased. We never know why we're biased, so... So where are we? I mean, I mean, we don't know why we're biased, but yet you say we're biased. <laughs> yes. Well, let's let's just start with, with first of all, all, all kidding aside. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. Sure. I, I really appreciate being here. I apologize if you're catching a little bit of a dog in the background. Sure. That's my puppy downstairs. My wife. I'm sure we'll get him out of the house quickly. But this is one of the problems with the Zoom environment. You know, we're operating from our home. So <laughs> I do hope that everybody's really well today. And uh, also want to just recognize that today is. Um, 
is National Indigenous Peoples Day. And, and um, you know, I'm on the land private previously inhabited by the Choctaw people where I am outside of uh, Winchester, Virginia. So, um, you know, I, I think if we let me take it out of the domain that we normally think of bias and put it into the function of power of mind works. You know, you wake up in the morning, you get out of bed, you walk across your bedroom floor to the restroom and, and do what you need to do. You never stop to think for a minute, is this floor going to hold me? You never, you know, with which with each step, it's it's conceivably possible that a floorboard could break, you could fall through the ground, and, and something could happen. That's all conceivably possible. It has happened in human history, but we don't think about it because our life experience has taught us floors we can trust, and so we walk across the floor without thinking about it. Or, or people uh, have a circumstance where they. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you you eat a food and you have a negative reaction to that food, and so from now on, whenever you see that food, you see it in a different way. This is fundamentally the way the mind works. You know, we learn from the past to predict the future, and if we didn't do that, uh, life would grind to a slow halt. In fact, we almost couldn't move forward. In fact, my uh, my good friend Sukhvinder Obi, who's a brain scientist at McMaster University in Canada, likes to say that our brains have designed to uh, our, our brains are designed to be good enough most of the time. We're making this guesswork. So what we've discovered in terms of the research on bias is we do this with people all the time. You know, you meet somebody, you have a reaction to him, hey, you know, you see him, you have kind of a positive hit. He seems like a good guy. Or you meet somebody else, there's something about this person is turning me off. You know, something about this person is making me wary. And, and often we don't even know what that is. It's just sort of a feeling that comes associated with the fact that that person clearly is reminding us of somebody else. So that's at the heart of what we're really talking about here is this fundamental human dynamic, which is predicting the present and the future based on our past experience, and it shows up as bias. So I think a lot of people want to believe, uh, you say on page three of the book, um, by the way, we're only to page three, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, we we are constantly making decisions that are influenced by unconscious biases. In fact, even when our biases seem conscious, they may be influenced by a pattern of unconscious assumptions that we have absorbed throughout our life. And then you, you give this exactly. great analogy. It, it's like a polluted river. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk, talk us through that because I think, because you, you and I both know that we really are in denial. We, mm-hmm. we, we don't, there, I think there's, there's several different types of people, right? We're, we're either in denial that we have a bias or we don't think that the bias that we have really is a bias. Yes. Does that does that make sense? What I just said. I, I, the more, yeah. I, because yeah. I, well, this is the way the mind justifies. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, Jay. This is the way the mind justifies. And one of the things that I think, you know, when I was writing the book and and subsequently, and when I work with people around this work, one of the things I try to do is to demystify and and um, to remove the demonization of bias. Right. Um, not because bias is 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 harmless. It can be obviously extremely harmful, as we've seen in you know tragic cases in in the news where somebody, you know, police officer, without intending harm, without having any you know decidedly racial motivation or anything else, pulls somebody is innocent because they represent a caricature of a stereotype that they may have seen before that looks dangerous, something like right. that. But the other side of it is bias can also protect us from danger. Um, you know, if, if you, you see who, who is 
designed to destined to do you harm and you avoid them. You, you don't go down that dark alley when you hear bat bottles crashing and people yelling and making loud noises or, or you know, you see somebody coming towards you with a glowering look and fists made and you know to prepare yourself for that. And so, and so bias can, can both be positive and negative, but the, the bottom line is it's, it's, always being, it's always being developed. And so, you know, when you talk about this notion of the polluted river, I mean, we're living our lives and stuff gets thrown in over time that shapes the way we see certain people or another. And, and obviously we're gonna more likely make determinations on people who are different from us because people who are the same as us, you know, if you think like I'm, I'm, you know, white skinned, obviously, for those of us who those are watching and not just listening, you know, um, when, when somebody talks about white people, I have a whole family and a whole clan of people in my life, you know, in, in addition to my friends of color, but, but, you know, all of these people. And so you talk about one white person, I don't necessarily think it means all white people because I've known so many different kinds of white people over the course of my life. But if I've known relatively few Asians or relatively few African-Americans or relatively few um, Latinx people or other groups of people who are different from me, it's much easier for me to generalize. It's much easier for me to take that few and make it more because I don't know quite so many. And so it's often true that we have stronger biases against people who are outside of our group than we do about people who are inside of our group. But we develop these attitudes and this way of being. We develop attitudes about people based on their body shape and size. One of the places, as you know, that we talk, that talk about in a book were biases that even physicians have about people who are overweight. Um, that we five major universities have done studies that found that physicians have biases about people who are overweight, spend less time with them, follow up less on protocols, um, you know, don't take what they're saying as seriously. And ironically, patients have been found to have biases about physicians who are overweight. So, so this is constantly like a drip, drip, drip that's in our system all the time. And, and sometimes uh, one of the reasons I titled the book Everyday Bias was because I don't want to get into splitting hairs between what becomes conscious and what's unconscious because we never really know. But, but for example, um, many of our conscious biases, I'll use homophobia as an example. People have biases against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Um, that may be a conscious bias, but where did it come from? You know, it started when we were little and we were told girls do this, but boys don't do this. Or we heard maybe we were at a religious institution and we heard the the, the priest or the, um, you know, the, the whoever was leading the service say something about people like that. Or we saw some caricatures on TV and over after a while, we develop a negative bias towards those people without even questioning it. And at some point we have the justification for it, but we've never really questioned that justification. And if anything, my intention with the book is to call people to remove some of our exclamation points and turn them into question marks. Uh, we're talking with Howard J. Ross. He's the author of Everyday Bias, the book uh, that I'm holding up right now, available Amazon bookstores near you. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a great book. It's available in all sorts of formats. So if you're somebody who uh, would prefer another format outside the hardcover that I'm holding, trust me, it is available um, as well. Um, I want to, I want to jump a little bit further, not too much further. Don't worry. I haven't, Got too many pages ahead. Okay. Um, but the question you ask, uh, and and by the way, I think I'm still in chapter one. Uh, is how rational are we? Is the question that you ask, and I thought it's a great question because I think we so often want to believe we're just so rational, right? And we want to believe, and you talk about this, uh, Kahan, uh, Peters, Dawson, and Slavic, and you talked about how. You know, we think that if we use logic, we can talk someone out of their point of view. And and it's really not true, is it? 
No, no, it's not. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite quotes is from John Kenneth Galbraith, the great economist, who once said, most human beings, given a strongly held point of view and evidence to the contrary, will quickly go about refuting the evidence. You know, the research you're talking about, um, what they found was um, they took relatively um, relatively similar uh, mathematical challenges, like, you know, the, the does you know the facts around gun control or the facts around climate change or the facts around these and they gave them to people based on um, their different political orientation and what they found was that um, when people were given facts uh, even though they were the same basic math when they were given those facts when it was outside of their normal political orientation so let's say i'm you know i'm against gun control and you give me facts that prove why gun control is right i lose my ability to count i literally lose my ability to to, to do the mathematics associated with that because the brain is sending me signals saying, no, it, it's almost like a silent, you know, like you remember the, remember the old Walt Disney cartoons with Jiminy Cricket on the shoulder, sure. you know, it's almost like, no, don't do that math right. Cause if you do, it'll disprove your point. And, and, and vice versa that we somehow make that math work when it fits, when it fits our, um, our political orientation. And, and, you know, God knows we all see this, you know, right now in, in this, you know, Whichever side of this bifurcated political environment we're in right now, we can all watch the same exact news reporting, completely, completely different interpretations. And so, this is really important for us to understand that that we think that we think that we're rational beings predominantly. And this goes all the way back to Plato, twenty five hundred years ago. You know, in his Phaedrus dialogues, when he told us that the rational mind was like the charioteer who holds the raging emotions in place, being the horses. And, and so for 2,500 years, we worshiped at the altar of the rational. And you can hear it in our language. You sure yeah. you're being rational about that? You sure you're not being too emotional? Yeah. But in fact, when we now use things like functional magnetic resonating imagery to observe the brain in action, we can see that the emotional parts of our brain, the limbic system, get triggered almost always before the rational part. And Absolutely. what we actually do is we start with that emotional hit, and then we gather the evidence to justify that. So if, for example, you meet me for the first time, Jay, and you're struck by, you know, a positive vibe, then you will start to notice the things about me that align with that positivity. Right. You'll, you will rationalize the ones that don't. Similarly, if you have a negative vibe, you will, you know, push aside the positives and you'll start looking for what it, what, what it is that you don't like. And, and this is something that human beings do. All of us as human beings do. His name is Howard J. Ross, and you're listening to him here on a new direction hey everyone listen you know what new direction has two fabulous sponsors one is epic physical therapy and you know a lot of times people think of physical therapy they think of you know having to go because you had injury or surgery or maybe you know because you're some high level athlete but you know epic physical therapy while they do serve those people you know what they also serve people who are just wanting to move and feel a little bit better I, I have been there. I have seen them actually just do training, like personal training, just helping people to physically be more fit, be better, talk about diet, talk about all sorts of things. It really is a complete program. It is why they are the elite team when it comes to physical therapy, because they customize a treatment plan tailored to your individual needs, whatever that may be. So with their experience of rehabbing young athletes to the elite professional athletes, right, they really understand the need to treat the entire body as a functional whole, not just your symptoms or your injury. They get it, right? So when you're ready for your epic relief, your epic recovery, and your epic results, don't look any further. Go to Epic Physical Therapy. You can learn more by going to EpicPT.com. That's E-P-I-C-P-T. Dot com. And Linda Craft and Team Realtors, you know what? They've been around for 35 years. 
and been at the top of the game. How do you stay? How do you stay around in the real estate game for 35 years? Be unaffiliated with any national company and be at the top of your game. Well, I'll tell you how they do it. Linda believed from 1985 when she started the business, she believed in creating relationships, and that was the way the business was going to be done. It was about people, right? Everybody was focused on, you know, at that time in the 80s where interest rates were 18%. She understood that the power of the relationship was far more powerful. And so she created relationships one at a time. Do you know the first customer she had back in 1985 still sees her today? Yeah, they do. Why? Because not only did she believe in creating the relationship, but she believed in maintaining the relationship. And that's why her clients call her and her team the legends of customer service. So no matter where you're at in the world, look, they can help you. I promise you they can because they've created relationships with the best experts regardless of company everywhere in the world. So when you're ready to sell your home or buy your next home, go with the relationship leaders. Go with the, the relationship maintainers. Go with the legends. Go with Linda Craft and Team Realtors. And you can learn more by going to lindacraft.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T dot com. And we're back here on A New Direction with Howard J. Ross and his outstanding book called Everyday Bias, Identifying, Navigating Unconscious Judgments in Our Daily Lives. Um, and uh, by the way, it's, it's, a, it's an eye-opening book into our brain and how we operate and uh, we are still at the very beginning. I, I promise we will move a little bit quicker for it, but I don't want to get us too far because we're talking about how rational we are. And Howard, one of the things I love with Damasio, the Damasio research, the D- Descartes error, and he talked about, and this, I want people to understand why we are so confident in knowing that we're just not as rational. And so he talked about his patient, Elliot, who had a brain tumor. And I don't want to get Folks, I don't want to get too geeky, right. but I'm all geeked out because I love ventromedial frontal lobe damage. Okay, so <laughs> I just love right. that stuff, right? But let's talk, let's talk about why that's really an important piece of research, uh, what really happened there, because it really does give us some insight into our lack of rationality. Right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, basically what, what he found in terms of the the uh, VMF was that what you're talking about was that this 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 guy, Elliot, was a very successful businessman, happy family man, life worked completely, had this tumor, which which impacted that part of his brain. And he, he came in to, to interview with Damasio and, and Damasio, Damasio said that, you know, he, he said, in fact, I was I was with him once and I actually talked to him about this. He said, he said, you know, the guy came in, I figured, wow, if he got emotion out of the picture, because that's a part of the brain that sources emotions kind of located right here between our eyes, basically. Um, he said to figure if, if you get emotion out of the way, he'd probably make really good decisions because there'd be nothing but, you know, draw the line in middle facts on the right facts on the left, which makes more sense. So he gives him, he gives him, he asks him, would you like a pen or a pencil to fill out your thing? And it, and it took the guy like, you know, 40 minutes to decide whether he wanted a pen or a pencil, because the truth is we don't realize how our emotions actually guide our rational decision-making. You know, why is, you know, this is cold and this is hot. Well, how we feel about cold and hot makes a determination about how we, how we determine how much of a factor that plays. And this is the thing where I think we get um, messed up a lot of times when we think we're being rational is that we don't realize how, for example, 
we may have a feeling about where the, the data comes from. If, if one person says it's Howard University and the other person says it's Harvard University, do we give the Harvard University more credibility because we happen to like that school more because we happen to have heard better things about that school? Um, you know, is it a female researcher versus a male researcher? Right. We, that can impact the research data we have. So even at the, at the deepest levels of science, and I've done a lot of work over the last number of years with the Association of American Medical Colleges, and as a result, worked at Harvard Medical School, as you said, and Stanford Medical School and others. And even, even at that level, they find that these biases play a role in how we, we make our fundamental decisions. So, so again, we come back to the same point, which is that you know, we've got to start putting more question marks where we have these exclamation points in our lives. Yeah, I, I, th- I think I, the, the thing I don't want people to miss is that, listen, we, you, you're saying it, and, and we'll probably say, you'll say it again, but really, we have to have these emotions as part of our decision-making process. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's fundamental, yeah. because in, in Damasio's work with Elliot, this guy couldn't make, the, and, when, and it's, when the decisions got more personal and social, it, it became almost impossible for him to make a decision. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, because he, so much of our decision No, 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 no. I, go, go ahead. It, it just, yeah. it, it, it's, it's just yeah. that we think we want to think that we're so rational, and that if we could remove all the emotion, oh, we can make our decisions, and it would be, we can't work that way. Right, because because so much of our decision making is built on our values, our personal values, our personal standards, all of which is wrapped up in emotion. Um, you know, do we what what we think is fair, what we think is right. Um, you know, all of us have made decisions that on the surface, um, on a rational basis, we probably would not have made, but we made them because we had compassion for people. Um, we we were in you know we, we felt we wanted to treat somebody more fairly and therefore we gave them a little bit of grace on something um, you know we we interpret something differently because it comes from one friend who we really trust completely versus somebody else who we don't know at all or who we who we tend not to trust you've got friends everybody out there's got friends who could call you today and say oh my god a a a, a, a Flying saucer landed in my backyard, and you'd be ten, you'd be inclined to believe them because you know you've got that you know you've got complete trust in their integrity. And somebody else who could tell you something that's completely obvious, and you would be suspect because of the opposite. So so it's it's all so wrapped up that right. we don't realize. I think that what it really comes down to is we've been spending all this time trying to make robots act more human, when in fact what we ought to be trying is to make humans is to understand how humans could be less robotic in our decision making. Mm. Uh, we're with Howard J. Ross, author of Everyday Bias. Uh, he's with us here. Uh, so one of the next things that comes right after this is th- the issue of memories. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to skip over memories because you, you say, because they're really important. It, and it's chapter two, thinking about thinking is the name of the chapter. Yeah. Over the course of our lives, we collect millions of memories, which get stored in both the conscious and unconscious parts of our brain. These memories also get stitched together into a fabric that makes up our view of the world. But how real is this world? That's the question you ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. See, one of the one of the, um, the challenges is that we've been given a false uh, understanding, and and it's not just because science learned new things. So it's not it's not that you know people did this intentionally. And and one of the things is you know I try to do throughout the book to try to break up this bias equals badness paradigm that we live in because this stuff doesn't happen most of the time because we're being bad people. It's just because we have blind spots and we naturally have blind spots. But the way we've been taught about memory is that we remember things as if they happen. They get stored in our memory and then we retrieve them at times. So let's say, you know, I'm in fourth grade. 
and I'm riding on a bus and Johnny sitting next to me says something that makes me upset and that leads to something happening. And I remember that like a story. What we now know is that that's not the way the brain stores memories. What the brain does is, is breaks memories apart and stores, stores different parts of them in different parts of our brain. So our visual memories might be stored in one part of the brain, the auditory aspect in another part of the brain, the nonlinear in another part, the more linear in another part. And then when we retrieve them, we pull them together, but we rarely pull them together perfectly. Um, and so that story that I just told you might not have been in fourth grade. It might have been actually in the third grade. It might not have been Johnny sitting next to me. It might have been Sally. And Sally might not have, in fact, said the thing I, I can remember. She said she might have said something different, but it, but it reminds me of that. So, so you know, and, and it's so funny how these memories get triggered, too. What what right. particularly stimulates them? So I I use a neti pot every morning to to clean my sciences out because some Ayurvedic doctor who I met once told me about do this and particularly with COVID, it's a good idea to do it. So, and, and whenever I do the neti pot, I get almost every single morning, this memory gets triggered because one time when I, when I did a, a talk about this book at Google, uh, my son hadn't seen, ever seen me speak. One of my sons, he happened to live there, there. So he came with me to be in the audience and me speak. I was using the neti pot in the hotel that morning, and my son hadn't seen it before. So he asked me about it. And that was in Mountain View. And I have a friend who recently, who I met, who was in Mountain View, California. And so when I'm doing my neti pot, now I think of my son and this other guy almost every single morning. Now, it makes no sense that I would do that, right? But it, but it just happens because those memories have to, be, have to be attached to each other. And so this is really important when we look at how we shape memories relative to people, for example, or kinds of people, because where, where racial bias is concerned, for example, we pick selective memories of the positive or negative things we've heard about particular racial groups, and we form memories and stories around them. Where gender bias is concerned, we choose the gender, gender stories about people who we have a particular attachment to or for whom somebody happened and we could dismiss all kinds of other women in my case um who who i've dealt with and so and so it, it's really important for us to recognize this that that it, it is a tapestry that gets woven but it's not nearly as accurate as we think that it is uh we're talking to howard j ross uh author of everyday bias you know i think what happens is so frequently is you know i i think it's Bias comes in so many different forms, you know, I mean, we, of course, race and we could talk gender, but we, we could be so biased on anything in reality. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I look, you know, I mean, I look at age, I guess because I'm getting older, <laughs> but, but I mean, I'm like, I look Tell at me about it. <laughs> I mean, I look at age bias, right? But whether you're, whether, you know, we use millennials as like, it's a dirty word. Right. Right. And then, and then, yeah. you know, if you're, you know, and you know, if you're an upstart company, you're not looking at anybody over four, 35 or 40, you know, you, you know, and that may sound biased. I'm, I'm making it purposely that way. But the point being is that we can be, we can be literally biased. I could be biased about the color of your book. I can go, you know, I don't know why for, for crying out loud. Why did Howard choose yellow? Really? Seriously? Yellow? Yellow is awful. I mean, you know, I mean, I could be, because I don't like yellow. I happen to like. Right. I, I I do happen to like the cover though. I do. I'm a little biased mm-hmm. towards yellow, so I have. To I like can't. It. I can't claim that. I have to say the publisher works on the cover <laughs> and they, they give it to me. But 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 you know there is a lot of research. You know there are yeah. marketing companies that have invested right. hundreds of thousands of dollars into research about how people respond to certain colors and how they yeah. make them feel. Look, one of the studies I think I talk about in a book. You know, John Barge is a researcher at Yale University who 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 researches priming, these priming techniques, like what triggers particular reactions. And Barge found that um, 
that, uh, that when people hold cold drinks in their hands versus warm drinks, they tend to be tougher on interviewees than when they're holding, than when they're holding warm drinks. There's another study that was done about, a, there's a color that's called, it, the specific name of the color is Baker Bill or pink. It's, it's sometimes called drunk tank pink because it's this color. It's like the kind of Pepto-Bisbal pink for, for watchers who, who, who are trying to kind of get a sense of it. And it turns out that this color of pink, when people have it around them in an environment, as a calming influence on the brain. So they actually do paint some jail cells now in this color. And they found that, that, um, that if, uh, um, that people are in this environment, they tend to calm down. In fact, some football coaches, they painted the opposing locker room, this color in hopes that it would, it would down the opposing players before they came onto the field. So, you know, this is stuff that defies any logic that a right. color on the wall would change how football players play or whether or not prisoners get into fights. But nonetheless, it's been found in really very rigorous scientific research yeah. to play out. It, 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 it's, it's so true. Can, can we, can we pick on Maslow for a second? I really want to, because sure. I really sure, want to, I, I really want to pick on him and you do. And I am so proud of you. I am so proud of you. That's my bias for picking on Maslow because I have I, I you know, a lot of people if people people who are listening out there whether live or you know um, podcast or on radio you know we all know the Maslow's pyramid the hierarchy of needs right and you know the, the his theory of motivation which by the way we have constantly in psychological research have said you know that's really not true that really doesn't work that way it's not and um, Howard it 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 demonstrates a flaw because, well, I'm going to let you tell him, you know, his big, sure. because, right, because our, the primary need, right, is that, you know, it's, it's our, it's our physical, it's our physical needs are the primary needs and you, that's right. but Harry Harlow, and I'm going to let you take it away. Okay, great. Yeah, well, well, actually, you know, Abraham Maslow created his model in 1943, and for those who don't know, his base, basically model of needs is considered to be a foundational model in modern psychology, and it was really, it's really important work because it does have us look at human how human need impacts people. But Maslow created a, a hierarchical structure for these needs, and and as you're saying, Jay, it starts at the lowest level with our physiological needs, food, sleep, that sort of a thing, and above that, safety, and above that, belonging, and above that. Um, self-esteem, and finally, what he called self-actualization, which is when we fully realize ourselves as human beings. And and for the most part, that that has gone on, gone unchallenged for most of 70 years in any major way. Um, but we now realize, and, and some of it is by studying functional magnetic, magnetic resonating imagery, you can see which parts of the brain trigger in certain ways. We now realize that Maslow was wrong, that 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 belonging is actually our key human need. And it makes sense if you think about Absolutely. it. You know, what's the most vulnerable time of a human being's existence? Infancy, right? And if you don't belong to somebody as an infant, you die. And so for the right. first, and because human beings are more dependent on others to survive in our first couple of years than virtually any other animal on the planet, the key message that we get in the early stages of our life is I exist because you exist, whether mm-hmm. you're mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, or whatever. Um, and so we've been we've been raw. And, and when we look at things like, you know, a suicide bombing, whether it was, you know, the Japanese in World War II or Palestinians today or, or other outbreaks. Sure. I mean, it obviously completely refutes Maslow's notion because in there you see the need to belong, the needs of my larger group are more important than my physical needs. Right. Now, as a, as a footnote to this, Jay, since I wrote the book and, and in talking about this, um, I've spoken a lot, as, as, as we've talked about already, and I was at a major university speaking about this, and this guy comes up to me afterwards, and he says he was actually a direct disciple of Maslow's. He was a student of Maslow. Maslow died very young, but right, he died yeah. in his 50s of so yeah. a heart attack. And he told me 
that at the time that he was working with Maslow, which was toward the end of his life, Maslow was furious that everybody put it in this period in this pyramid structure because that wasn't his original right. structure. Right. That he never apparently saw it as 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 hardened um, a, a, a hierarchical structure as it was later drawn up. Now I don't know whether that's true or whether the guy loved Maslow and he was trying to protect him or not, but right. I, I just don't know. But if we look at these needs, we can see and 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 other people like Gerrit Hofstede, for example. Gert Hofstedler, the um, the great Dutch sociologist, organizational sociologist, has said that Maslow's hierarchy also applies more in individualistic cultures versus in collectivist Absolutely. cultures. So if you go to places like like Asia, where the cultures are mostly collectivist, the group needs are by far more important than than individual right. needs. So so it's it's so important that we don't that we begin to, like I said I've said numerous times that we question some of these models that have been so foundational to us because this need to belong to fit in is undoubtedly primary for most of us. In fact, we know that being excluded from a group triggers activity in the dorsal posterior insula of the brain, which is the same part of the brain associated with physical pain. You, you know, I, I just as a just as an, an anecdotal practical level of, of this piece, I say this regularly. I've said this to the college students when I've taught psychology. You know, if 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 that pyramid and, and whether it was true or not that it was a sub pyramid, if that was true understand that you would not have a desire to text message while you drive if your safety was so important. Exactly. But because you want to belong, want to be part of the conversation, you will text and drive at the, at the peril of your safety, physical safety. That's right. Look, I can give you even a more basic need. How many people who are listening to us have been in a meeting at work? You had to go to the bathroom and you sat there squirming rather than be the first one to stand up and leave the meeting, and go to the bathroom. Right. I mean, there's no more basic physical need than that. Right. And yet we could all relate to that story. You didn't want to get out. You didn't want to be the one who stood up. Right. Yes. Um, and, and, and that's a paramount example of what you're talking about. The need to fit in the group and not be seen as an outsider right. by the group covers even that basic physical need of, of elimination. So um, so so we know that this is true. As human beings. That's awesome. His name is Howard J. Ross. The book is entitled Everyday Bias, and you are listening to him here on A New Direction. Hey, everybody, I, I talk about epic physical therapy a lot because they're my physical therapists, and they have been for years, and, and it's because they do a great job. I've had several surgeries um, from, you know, tearing all the rotator cuffs off my shoulders, probably TMI, right, to, you know, several knee surgeries, right? They've put me back together, <laughs> literally. They, I feel like they have. You know, it's, it's, here's why, because it's, a, it's one of the most advanced, top-of-the-line facilities. They've got the best equipment, like the, anter, the, the Alter-G anti-gravity treadmill, which is awesome, the Normatec compression sleeves, which makes me feel like my joints are young again, and then the Game Ready, which is this uh, ice water compression thing that just takes the swelling out of your limbs. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal. Look, they are trained and certified in the most cutting-edge treatments available. Here's just a few. Uh, blood flow restriction therapy, dry needling. If you've never had that done, it's fantastic. And then cupping, if you've ever seen the circles on the back of a swimmer's back, where they're manipulating the muscle through the skin, it, it, it's great and it works. So when you're ready for your epic relief, when you're ready for your epic recovery, when you want those epic results, do not look any further. Start with epic physical therapy. That's epicpt.com. That's E-P-I-C-P-T.com. And Linda Craft and Team Realtors, you know what? Here's the thing about them. They've been around for 35 years and they're in the Research Triangle Park, but they help people all over the world. 
they have built relationships with other real estate professionals all over the world. They, they have helped people for 35 plus years in helping them sell their home and buy their home. And yes, they, they understand that, you know, the home is probably the largest purchase that you will ever make, you know, personally. Right. And that's probably true. But you know what the bigger issue is, is that that home will be the place where you had your greatest memories. End of the day. Right. You can never remember the price that your grandmother or grandfather paid for their house. But, man, you remember everything that you did there, don't you? I do. I, I never knew. I don't know what my grandmother, grandfather paid for their house, but I do sure remember those memories. That's what Linda understood is that that home, those memories are important to you. And those memories are the things that make a life over the course of time. I mean, we've been talking about that right here on the show, that our memories are woven together and we create life. And, our, and, and you know, sometimes we do get a little biased and we think about the good times and only the good times. But the truth is, you know what? We do remember those memories and they're precious to us. So when you're ready to sell or buy your home, why not go with the memory maker? Why not go with the person that her clients even say her customer service is legendary? Why not go with Linda Craft at Team? You can learn more by going to lindacraft.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T dot com. And we're back here on A New Direction with Howard J. Ross and Everyday Bias. And uh, we've been talking about some uh, bias, of course, and why we have them. But we're going to move, jump all the way over to Chapter 7. It's called Shifting to Neutral, How We Can Learn to Disengage from Bias. And you start off with a question, Howard. The question is, the question we have to ask is, Actually, you have several questions. So let's just, so I'm going to ask them both, okay? I'm going to, because you, you have the question we have to ask, and then we have the question we must ask. So the question we have to ask is, can we trust our own perceptions? And then the question we must ask, is there really anything we can do about our unconscious biases? So I'm going to let you tackle those one at a time and walk us through this. Okay, great. I just, I just have to say, Jay, you know, listening to your last, you know, advertisement there for, for Linda Graff, you know, that it reminded me of, wonderful quote from Dr. Maya Angelou, who said that uh, you'll never remember what people say, you'll never remember what you do, but you'll always remember how they made you feel. And there's yeah. and there's some foundational truth to that. We Absolutely. do store memories uh, based on how things make us feel. And all of us remember certain times in our lives. Like I can remember like yesterday, uh, hearing the news that President Kennedy was shot in 1963. Mm-hmm. So that's 57 years ago. You know, I was a kid, you know, I was only 12 years old at the time. And I can remember where I was sitting and, and how it happened. And then there are things that happened three days ago that I can't remember. So, <laughs> so, um, because that had such a huge right. emotional impact. Right. So it's true. So, so the first question is, is, you know, are we willing to question ourselves? I mean, this is, this is fundamentally, you know, what we've been talking about in various different ways the whole time today, uh, Jay, and that is that, um, we are driven towards a false sense of certainty. Um, some of us more than others, you know, um, you know, people with extreme narcissism, for example, can't even imagine that they're wrong. Sometimes people who are the most educated, this is one of the challenges I found, for example, in working in university environments or with people who are incredibly smart. Sometimes we think that because we're smart, mm-hmm. we can actually think our way through this process. But in actuality, what the research shows, the research at James Madison University pops to mind, is that Sometimes the smartest people have the most solid blind spots because we stop questioning ourselves. If we're used to being the smartest bulb in the box, if we're used to being the smartest person in the room, we don't even challenge ourselves. And this can be a challenge whether you're talking about a physician who doesn't consider other ways of doing services, whether you're talking about a lawyer who just knows only one way to practice or a politician or a, you know anybody. I mean, any of us in our lives, when we get arrogant, 
our, our thinking function stops. And, and what we found is that um, the most kind of the, the people who are most likely to be able to see it are people who, who are smart and willing to inquire, but also leave a little bit of question mark as to whether or not they're, they're sure that they're right all the time. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's, where it's, that's where it starts. So then, then let's assume we're in a good headspace about this. We really do want to know. Well, there are a number of things that we found that really have impact that we can actually begin to to bring some of the unconscious to the surface. And that's where that's where it's really important. Carl Jung said that until we make the unconscious conscious, it will rule our lives and we will call it fate mm. because we don't realize the role we're playing in all of this. So, so the first thing is the very fundamental thing that we're doing here, which is to acknowledge that we do have bias, that everybody has it. It doesn't make us a bad person. Doesn't make anything wrong. Mean there's anything wrong with us. It just means we're human. And even the Dalai Lama has bias. I mean, it's the nature of mind and how mind works. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has the same negative biases right. to people. Nor does it mean that everybody has biases towards the same kind of people. You know, we might each have the biases towards different kinds of people or different circumstances. But we all have it. And so when we approach, let's say, in a business environment, we approach a circumstance. Sometimes, even when people are highly um, interested in this, they might start the conversation by saying, um, gee, do we have any biases in these circumstances? Where in fact, the more appropriate question might be to ask, what are our biases in this circumstance? Right. Because they are there. Um, and, and the other thing is that some of them are legitimate. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes biases can be legitimate. We Or we accept that we have these biases. It doesn't mean there aren't exceptions, but the nature of the bias may be such that, that you know, that, that there's a, enough chance that it's going to happen that going with that bias makes sense okay so so let's say we start with that premise number one we all have bias okay then the question becomes well if i have bias and i'm not aware of it either because i'm in denial as you said or just because (laughs) they have blind spots about it you know i just am not seeing it um what do i do well that 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 maybe the most important of all the steps then is to say i'm going to consciously start watching myself the metaphor as you know jane the book i use is turning a flashlight on myself. It's a, right. just a, a metaphor my friend Michael Schieser created for doing this. It's like, am I watching myself in action? Am I spending part of myself time watching myself in action? Now, now we know that virtually any mental health practice, that anybody, whether it's therapy or programs, almost always has some component of this, becoming more aware of self, watching self, develops our prefrontal cortex more, um, one of the things we know it does is it pulls us out of our more reactive functions when we start. So I start to notice, are there certain people who I tend to feel more comfortable with than others? Mm-hmm. When I look at the friends in my life, do they represent different um, certain groups of people? You know, out of the top 10 people in my life are the people who are missing, kinds of people who are missing from that. Why is that so? Is it just geography? Is it just circumstance? Mm-hmm. Or am I more open to certain kinds of people than others? So we begin to ask those questions, things start to emerge. And, and part of this process, too, is to manage not going into guilt, because guilt, uh, too much of the work we've done around bias is centered around guilt, and guilt actually shuts people down. Amen. Um, when we feel guilty, we tend to make ourselves wrong or make the person who's making us feel guilty wrong. And then a third one, just to throw in, and then I'll take a breath for a moment, um, <laughs> is, is um, you know, uh, how do we develop what I'll constructive uncertainty? And that is what I mean by this, not paralysis by analysis, not slowing down our decision-making so much so that, that we, we can't even 
process anything anymore, but to, to develop some constructive uncertainty, to ask a few extra questions, have somebody else look at our process, uh, sleep overnight before you send out that email or that text that you were going to send, um, you know, to give yourself, a, to look, try to consciously look at things from different perspectives. This is where Gleb Sapersky's work has been so valuable because Gleb really has identified these different ways of making decisions that we can be a little bit more thoughtful of. So once we start doing at least those three things, then we can begin to realize, wow, okay, I hadn't thought about that aspect, or gee, I guess I could look at this differently, or gee, that completely changes the way I make this decision. Right. And we know that there are countless examples of people who've done this over time and have made better decisions because of it. Uh, Howard J. Ross is joining us. Uh, the book is Everyday Bias. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, by, the, by the way, there's so much there. You know, I think people want to think that the more educated we are, the less biased we are. Well, we, you completely... <laughs> just got rid of that because it's really not true. Uh, I, I love that, you know, I was raised in Nebraska, and so there was a University of Nebraska study that you talk about where, you know, it, even the professors thought that they were better than 98% of, you know, other professors. That's right. right? That's right. Like 90, 90 plus percent of the, of the professors thought that they were better than average. So it's like, what's wrong with that? What's you wrong know? with that picture? You know, you, right. d you did talk about turning the flashlight on yourself, and I thought one of the things that you said here right after you said that, and it's so important when it comes to combating bias is the more that we name name what is going on with us, and I'm quoting yes. you, the quieter the amygdala becomes, and we are less likely to be hijacked by the amygdala's automatic reaction. It is so, talk about why it is so important to name what is going on with you inside of you. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, and, and we know this colloquially. You know, this is why we have things like misery loves company and all these different sayings that we, these aphorisms we have. It's because when we get something out of our head, when we talk about, you know, let's say you have a reaction, you have a fear reaction for something and, and you know, you're, you're really triggered by it and it frightens you and your amygdala is on over. In fact, we, we, we have a name for it. Daniel Goleman coined it, a, an amygdala hijacking. Right. The fear center of the brain takes over, the limbic system takes over. Um, we can't think straight because the fear is going on. And then you go and somebody says, tell me what's going on. And you say, well, this happened. And it's almost like the steam valve releases. You feel yourself calming a little bit just by being able to share it with somebody. And, and what we know is that now studies by watching the brain using you know, um, functional magnetic resonating imagery, we know that when we watch the brain, uh, that the fMRI shows that the amygdala, the response in the amygdala starts to quiet down when we do this. Now, now again, interesting aphorism. What have we heard most of us all of our lives? If you're angry, count to 10. Just because this reaction, this amygdala hijack reaction, actually is about a 90-second reaction. And after about 90 seconds, it will start to calm down naturally by itself. It doesn't mean you won't still be afraid, but the panic aspect of it will usually start to will usually start to calm itself down. By the way, obviously there, there are exceptions to anything, sure. and there's some people who have panic disorder and things like this who who this doesn't necessarily apply to. But what often happens is we go into panic mode and then we panic because we're in panic mode and then we continue to panic because we're in panic mode. And so it's almost like a trip switch that keeps tripping itself. It's like it's like if you've ever seen one of these things where they have you know all of these different mouse traps and they all have a tennis a, a, um, a ping pong ball in them and you set off one and it all sets off the other and pretty soon they're all bouncing all over the what's happening in our mind so just taking a few minutes and calming oneself this is where mindfulness practices are really important things like breathing simply breathing can do that because when you to consciously say to yourself i want to breathe more deeply actually requires that prefrontal con prefrontal cortex to kick in 
which pulls you out of that limbic reaction and slows yourself down. And then you can make better decisions and more thoughtful decisions. Yeah, I, th- I think it's so important that we understand that, you know, when you, we get lazy when it comes to our bias and we don't want to dig there. It's almost like sometimes we want to hold on to it, you know, and, and, and listen, you are so right because ten- our tendency is to say, you know, what, we just want to guilt these people out of bias. We will never guilt people out of bias. You make that Correct. so clear over and over and over again in this book that you, we will never guilt someone out of their bias ever, ever. Mm-hmm. And so right. we have to, we, we, we get a little lazy and I talk about the training at the beginning of the show, but we have to become more self-aware and then we got to label it. We got to name it. Right. And then here's, here's, you say something in chapter eight that I thought is, is beautiful. You say, when we're aware of our reserves are low. And we've mistakenly blamed the wrong people or group or whatever. An apology can go a long way. Mm-hmm. This awareness, That's right. yeah. this awareness gives mm-hmm. us a new ability to consider our actions and modify them in more appropriate ways. Yeah, this is one of the things that I think uh, sadly happens with so many people. We make a mistake, and then we get so self-conscious about the mistake that we try to we try to hide it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we we smear cream cheese all over and try to make it look <laughs> nice. We do something nice for that person. It's like the it's like the you know the spouse who does something you know something. And I'm not talking about major interactions. Right. So you do something for your your you know for me in my case I'm I'm married. You know I, I do something let's say uh, you know that I know wasn't pleasing to my wife. And if I were rather than say, honey, I'm really sorry, I just come home with flowers. She might throw the flowers at me. She's not interested <laughs> in here getting the flowers until she gets the apology. You know, she wants first to know that I'm taking responsibility for what I did. I'm not just covering it up by doing something nice about it. And and um, and I think that this is important. You know, my my experience has been, and I've worked with very t- difficult situations and very difficult places for 35 years professionally. And before that, just in terms of doing work with social justice, is that people have a remarkable capacity for forgiveness when people are honest and take responsibility for whatever they did, whatever infraction they did, that that people remark. Now, I'm not saying 100 percent all the time, right, of course, right. but it's really quite remarkable. In fact, in fact, um, you know, I find sometimes when we do that ourselves and we take full responsibility for something and really own it with people, people feel better about us than had we never done the original infraction mm-hmm. because we've demonstrated that we have integrity as human beings, that we're willing to own our stuff. And now it's much, you're, you, you feel much more trust being in a relationship with somebody who's willing to own their own stuff. His name's Howard J. Ross and the book Everyday Bias. And you know what? We've been on uh, almost a full hour. Uh, oh my gosh! It's gone so fast. I I have thoroughly enjoyed this time with you. Uh, the book is the book's great, and and it's been eye opening. And I know that people all over the world, you know, the <clears throat> thousands of the people that get to listen to the show are going to are are going to change as a result of the things that you said. The the the, the book that you've written here, the show Howard is called a new direction because we try to help people find a new direction in their life or their career in the business and. If you were to give people a new direction based on your work here in Everyday Bias, what would be that new direction from Howard J. Ross? It would be reach out to somebody who's different from you and ask them if you can have a conversation just to understand each other without changing points of view. Maybe it's somebody different racially. Maybe it's somebody, you know, maybe it's a a coworker who's of another gender. Um, Maybe it's somebody with a different political orientation. You know, reach out and say, hey, look, you know, I know we have differences. What I'd love to do is just try to understand those differences and and just listen to each other. And what you begin to find is you realize that underneath these things that we separate ourselves from is a common humanity. We're all trying to 
you know, feel better about ourselves every day. We're trying to, you know, achieve happiness and avoid pain. Um, we want our kids to grow up safe. Um, you know, it's just, you know, I, I, I think I share in there, I, I read the transcripts of the Camp David Accords when um, Jimmy Carter brought together um, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. And, um, and they struggled as they tried to deal with these issues that the Israelis and Egyptians had dealt with for all these years. And then he asked something of both of them. He said, well, what's the world you would like for your grandchildren? And that was the key. That was what broke it open because when they both started sharing what they wanted for their grandchildren, they realized that they had a common vision for the future. And that's what we all have. And so if we get underneath all that other BS and really get down to our humanity, we have an opportunity to find each other. His name's Howard J. Ross, and he has been great, has he not? Folks, this is a show, as I say. What to a you, pleasure, Jay. Oh, what a pleasure, really. Uh, I so enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Folks, to see, this is this is what the show is about, right? Right. It's why we called New Direction. You know what I tell you every week? Be inspired. Because when you're inspired, that means you'll inspire other people. And in turn, when they're inspired, they'll inspire others. And then, you know what? That makes this world a really great place. I want to be back next week with another great show, another great guest, another great book. And as I say to you every week, and you know what that is, right? Ciao, everybody. To go a different way, yeah. The time has come for a new direction. your confidence and the answers don't make sense you got to keep your hope alive you got to know you can survive this is your time to find a new direction a brand new day a new direction things are gonna change Die.